And you know that both Moses and Elijah would have been in favor of a deus ex machina, warrior God. That's how you get out of it, Jesus. You call, call, call fire down from heaven. You split the Red Sea. You slaughter the priests of Baal. Come on, what, do you, what, what kind of struggle is there here? And yet the voice from heaven tells the disciples, you're listening to the wrong voices. Violence and Jesus, today on In the Shadow of the Cross. I am Lauren Rosser, and I'm here once again with my friends Jim Durkin Howdy. and the Godfather. <laughs> At least that's what it says on the screen. Show me some Michael Harden. So we had a really interesting discussion last week on uh, Jesus and uh, nonviolence, and uh, it was it was really fascinating. So we thought we would continue this, and um, to the conclusion of last week, I was thinking about how it's interesting that Paul writes a lot about us being aliens, foreigners. Um, and as we were talking about that, about nonviolence, I was going, you know, that really starts to make sense because how um, the world is very much bent on using violence, retaliation of that nature. So you really, just as we were talking last week about how you really do become a peculiar person if you choose a different path than violence. And it's funny because last week, Jim, you were talking about how it's really also different than like the narrow road and such than what we've thought of it as. And I think the same thing when we talk about being a peculiar person that we've just said, oh, it's because, you know, we go to church or we pray to God or we, you know, are charismatics because we do crazy stuff during our church services. And it's like, but when you look at it from a place of, nonviolence, you know, it takes a whole different meaning about being a peculiar person. So let's, let's pick it up where we did last week. Um, last week, I know we concluded, we were talking about Moses and Jesus. Um, and, uh, Jim shared a really good passage about Moses talking about God being a man of war. And then we got into an interesting conversation about how, um, that is so contrary to the God that Jesus showed. So I just want to open that up. Let's, uh, let's just pick that up from last week. Uh, what, what do you guys have to add to that as far as God being a man of war and the contrast we see in the, uh, between the New Testament writers, uh, and their, their contrast to Moses? I haven't, uh, looked into this in uh, great depth. Uh, I'm sure Michael has, but it's interesting that Jesus uh, on the, on the Sermon on the Mount, he refers over and over to Moses said this. He doesn't say scripture says this. He doesn't say, you know, God taught this or, Whatever it, you know, he doesn't even really go into the law. Says this, he 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 he's, he says Moses said this, and and I I, I just it's it's caused me to question why he used that ter- particular terminology. And in looking into this, I find an interesting thing that Joshua repeatedly use the same terminology. Um, 
I, 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 I'm not going to say that every single time he, he said that, but often he would say, look, in, in accordance with what Moses taught us, or according to Moses, or, you know, it's, it's also the law is called the law of Moses. And I, I just, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to uh, put down Moses, uh, you know, but I, but, but it's interesting if that really is the case, uh, that it's, it's the law of Moses. That was his best understanding of who God was. Uh, you know, if, if that was his interpretation. And it's, it's been suggested that that interpretation basically came from a, a, worldview of what the gods required. So if the gods required it, then, of course, the god of all gods would also require the same thing, because that's what God requires. And, and I, I, I find it interesting, and I think at some point in time in today's conversation, I want to uh, pick up at this that on the Mount of Transfiguration, it's Moses and Elijah, and God is saying, listen to Jesus. Right. Uh, now, I want to I want to come back to that at some point in time and really get into some discussion on that. But, Michael, what about that? What about the fact that Jesus is referring to it, not as Scripture tells us this or the law tells us this, but Moses said this? Is there something in that? Um. I would say for a Jew of Jesus state to say Moses said or Torah said would be equivalents. Okay. The synonyms. Okay. You know, um, uh, but, 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 this is where it gets really interesting. Um, so when you deal with this question of Jesus and the law or Jesus and Torah, okay, been a lot of work done on all this. Um, the conclusions that I have come to was that Jesus did not view Holy Scripture uh, as dropped from heaven. He would cherry-pick texts. He would add stuff. He would omit stuff. Uh, and so does the Apostle Paul. And where they add and where they omit is consistently the same. It has to do with violence. But in the Gospel of John, which is admittedly, you know, there's questions in and around the whether anything in the Gospels is historical and what is historical and what isn't. And I don't want to get into that. What I do want to note is in the fourth Gospel, the Gospel of John, it, Jesus consistently says, in your law it is written, in your law, in your law, in your Torah, in your Torah. And... Um, the, the Gospel of John is, in fact, a highly structured document with a very, very clear uh, Jesus-Moses relation, which indicates to us that this Gospel community is, is firmly engaged with the Judaism of the late first century. Just as Matthew's Gospel was fully engaged in Antioch, apparently the Johannine communities. Uh, engaged with Judaism in uh, Asia Minor, Ephesus area. Oh, I was just going to say, I, I've also 
heard that in that a whole lot of the fourth gospel is directly um I, I don't know the right terminology to use but it's it's setting Jesus apart from Moses is that accurate that a whole lot of it is is um saying it, it's like tr- using terminology that they they would have understood as associated with Moses but and it and it's saying but this is Jesus yeah so we want to be really careful here with our language because number one we can't be supersessionistic Right. We have, we have to apply the same exact standard to Christian Christianity and the apostolic church as we do to Judaism. We are, we we cannot come out and say, hey, the, the church figured it out better than Israel, you know. And sadly, that's what Christianity's done. We've got the revelation. They don't. Right. When in fact, Christianity is just another form of religion. It's they, they lost that. I mean, it's the Holy Spirit's always working throughout church history, but in terms of of the gospel, the gospel is, man, it is like a grain of mustard seed. It is out there being planted in people's lives. And we have, I mean, it's not a movement. It's not a big building. It's not a, a ministry or a, none of that. It's, anyway, when you get to the fourth gospel, right off the bat, you have a Jesus-Moses parallelism in John 1, in the prologue. It says, grace and truth Torah, Torah, Torah came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. Now, is the writer saying there was no grace and truth in Torah? Is that what he's saying? No, I don't think so. I mean, we, 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 well, how, how, what makes you think that? Uh, good question. Uh, my Sunday school training. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there, there is going to be something that as you move throughout the fourth gospel, it's a very clear Jesus-Moses parallelism. Jesus' first miracle is to turn the water into wine. And while there are connections to the Dionysius ritual, um, there are also connections to the uh, polluting of the rivers with blood in the book of Exodus. And in the Jewish tradition, Moses was known for a, about 10 miracles, okay? And sometimes those got whittled down to seven for the perfect number, as we see in the book of Wisdom. But um, the Gospel of John follows that pattern. So you have the rivers turning to blood. You have the uh, Jesus-Moses parallelism of the ser- as the serpent is lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up on a cross, you know. Um, there is a, an almost sideways glance at the Jesus-Moses parallelism with John 4 and the woman at the well saying, which mountain are we to worship on? Because... Their Torah says Zion. Our Torah says Shechem. So it was a debate about the text of the Torah, right? Yeah. And um, or Mount, I'm sorry, Mount Gerizim, Mount Gerizim. And you move into John five. You have the healing of the of the paralytic of the pool. John six is the Jesus Moses. Moses gave you manna. I give you the bread of life. In John seven, in a very kind of cryptic. Um, uh, piece in 737 to 39 of, oh, at the last, the greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried aloud saying, let the one um, who is thirsty come to me and drink, you know, and then the writer says, and um, by the way, the, he was referring to the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit was not yet, uh, was not that time. And so now we have an image there of the Shekinah and because the, there's, there's other textual pieces in here with reference to that little small text. And then in John 8, you move right into uh, the Shekinah again with Jesus as the light of the world. You know, 
Um, John 10, Jesus contrasts himself with false shepherds. And in the Jewish tradition, Moses was perceived as the good shepherd. And so now he's saying, I am the good shepherd. In John 11, he takes this thing well beyond Torah when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Uh, and then there are uh, some more implicit Jesus-Moses parallelisms. And then, of course, um, the um, passion narrative, which involves blood and water uh, and all the Eucharistic overtones in this gospel uh, show us that Jesus is the one that reveals the Father, not Moses, not Torah. Why? Because the Father is not like the God of Torah. Right. Now, you mentioned that uh, Paul and Jesus would, would cherry pick to uh, scriptures yeah. to make um, so that God's not violent. Um, I'm sure a lot of our listeners would love to hear. Do, do you have an example, some examples you could give of that? Well, of course, there's a, the big famous one would be the Isaiah 61 in Luke chapter 4, the Spirit of the Lord's Army, you know, would preach good news to the poor, recover sight to the blind, blah, blah, blah. blah. And then. Jesus omits the and the day of the vengeance of our God and in, instead substitutes uh, a phrase from Isaiah 52, 7 there. Um, there. There's one example. And that's what pisses the crowd off, by the way. I mean, they, they get angry at him because he has to, he's just played with their holy text. And now he has to explain himself. And he says, oh, look, 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 let me, let me show you what I'm doing. And he uses the Elijah, Elijah narratives. God went outside Israel. God went outside Israel. I'm going... I'm going outside Israel. I'm going to the Galileans. I'm going to the Samaritans. I'm going, you know, I'm going everywhere. And the crowd did not want to hear this, that, that God was bringing Jubilee to the Romans. That's really what that passage is saying, you know. And uh, so that's one example. Another one would be the great commandment. What's the great commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But when you go back to Deuteronomy, the word mind isn't there. Jesus is the one that says you've got to love God with your mind. And that's why I always am fascinated by the anti-intellectual tradition within Christendom. Because it was Jesus that added that to the great command. Why? Because religious people are unthinking. They're sheep. They're all lost and gone astray. If you won't think, you cannot follow Jesus. Wow. So those are two examples. I, 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 a, th a third one that came to mind, if you could expand on it, um, was how Paul said, it said, uh, was it, uh, cursed, uh, curses everyone who hangs upon a tree? Yes, and, correct. Uh, and Paul, I think, isn't the original cursed by God is everyone who hangs upon a tree? That, that, that's correct. Paul omits the two words by God. And um, because he's not going to tie divinity with sacred violence. He doesn't put them together. He keeps them apart. So, yes, that's correct. That'd be another wow. one. Romans 15 is chock full of them. 
you know, is another example. Um, when you go compare that to the Septuagint text, you can see Paul's just taken the verses that he likes. Wow, interesting. Yeah. yeah. So I, I want to circle over to what Jim was talking about because this has come up in a lot of conversations um, when when I've been talking with people. Um, the whole thing, you know, because people will, it's a continuous thing, especially in evangelical circles and fundamentalism is, you know, we've talked about how the Old Testament and the New Testament, they're basically equal. God just needed someone to kill. So Jesus came and, you know, and so I get into these discussions, how Jesus is the, the, the exact representation of the father and just kind of what we talked about that, you know, Moses wasn't the father. If my argument is always that if, if, uh, if Moses was the, showed us the father, we wouldn't have needed Jesus, you know? we would have got it from Moses. We didn't, we didn't get it from Moses. Um, and that's not to bash, like you said, it's not to, not to bash Moses or the Jewish tradition. It's just that Jesus is the one who showed us the father. Um, so going to the, the Mount of Transfiguration, um, I think that's worth highlighting what Jim brought up and, and, and discussing is the whole conversation where we see Moses, uh, Jesus talking to uh, Moses and Elijah and then we remember uh, Peter says, it's good that we're here because, you know, we'll build you each a, a tabernacle. And uh, and then uh, the father says from heaven, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Um, let, let, let's go ahead and uh, engage in that. So um, what's going on there? Well, within Luke's narrative, you have a very clear um, Jesus-Moses parallelism in the travel narrative, which is Luke 1050. I'm sorry. 957 through 1914 at the big central section. In that central section, Luke is going to pick up on the four major themes about Moses found in Torah, particularly the suffering Moses. Moses, in Judaism, there are different kind of pictures of Moses, just like there are really four portraits of David in the Samuel King's Chronicles literature. You know, okay. there, there's the the young shepherd, there's the warrior king, there's the sinner, David, and then there's another one. Uh, so um, you have different views of Moses in, in Judaism. My sense is that we, ha- we, we want to distinguish between these views of Moses. We really do. Um, Luke is careful to pick up on the suffering Moses, the, the prophet without honor, the that that theme and and the wicked people that don't listen, they can't listen, you know, and the consequences of that. Um, so the text that you're referencing in Luke on the Transfiguration, in that context, you have the three figures on the mountain, and the disciples completely misunderstand what's happening here. And Luke is, I mean, I, I don't recall what the Markan author uses. I think he might use the word death, thanatos. Um, but Luke intentionally says they spoke of his exodus and his way out. How's he going to get out of this? And you know that both Moses and Elijah would have been in favor of a deus ex machina, warrior God. That's how you get out of it, Jesus. You Call, call, call fire down from heaven. You split the Red Sea. You slaughter the priests of Baal. Come on. What, do you, what, what kind of struggle is there here? And yet the voice from heaven tells the disciples, you're listening to the wrong voices. You're trying to mix Jesus, Moses, and Elijah together in a little stew. And it doesn't work that way. Listen to my beloved son, period. 
So what does Jesus, what's the function of Jesus? Jesus teaches us how to interpret the Elijah narratives, how to interpret the Mosaic narratives, how to interpret any narrative. Because we can now understand that only in Jesus do we see a, a nonviolent, purely loving father. And in all religion, we're always going to get that two-faced God. And that's what makes the gospel an affront to every religion on the planet, including Christianity. Wow. I'm, uh, I'm pondering a lot here because there, there's a lot there. Um, first of all, I like... Um, when, when you shared about uh, Moses and Elijah discussing Jesus' exodus, I like that you didn't attribute to them like they suddenly became different people. Like uh, like Moses and Elijah suddenly were like, oh, we're of the exact same mindset as Jesus now. You know, that it, it's like, no, they're, they're still Moses and Elijah. They're, they're still, you know, products of their culture, their their time. Their, um, it's, it's just kind of interesting. And, then, and to think of Jesus having this discussion with them um it's like it's almost like jesus is having to stand alone even from the voices of his own tradition yes that's hard yes i mean what a what a picture you know to to show that that these two voices that are the dominant voices in his culture in his world are are telling him, yeah, yeah, resort to power, resort to this is this is what we believe about God. This is what the tradition upholds. This is the path, and and Jesus is there in that conversation, having to choose a choosing a different path. That is correct. Never saw it that way. Saw it as like they're there going, yeah, Jesus, you go, man, go to that cross. All right, Jesus, you know, like they're all in agreement, you know, and they're just kind of there like the uh, picture of the boxing ring, you know, you got the two referees, the one squirting the water on the face, the other, you know, giving them the towel, you know, that's kind of how I always pictured it. And here it's like, no, these are two different people representing a tradition that's very, that, that he is standing opposed to the sense of violence, the worldview, the world, not, not Jewish culture, that the world so to speak, um, that he's actually standing in a completely different path than that. And so right. he's having to, to pivot from these two voices that are all, that are around him. That's, that's, I, I want to chew on that a while. That's, <laughs> there's a lot to think about there. That's heavy. Well, I, I think what you're saying, Lauren is, is um, it's, it's a good point. I've always uh, been taught and uh, like you, always thought that they were kind of on like on either side of Jesus. Jesus was the central figure and Moses was on one side of him and Elijah on the other side. And they're, they're like the rally cry, like now we see it, you know, and, and, you know, it's, we're so glad you're here. And, and, you know, the day is coming soon, you know, when all men were redeemed and, you know, and they're, and they're bolstering Jesus's faith. I don't know where I got that, but, you know, I've, I, 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 I kind of grew up believing that and probably being taught that. But Jesus's response and Peter's response tells me that that can't possibly be true. Or, or uh, God's response, rather. God's response is, no, this is my son. Hear him. Peter's response is the exact opposite of that. 
No, let's build a temple for all three of them. <laughs> and isn't it true that modern Christianity is still attempting to build a, a, a house of worship for all three? Oh, yeah. We still we still want to walk in the law. We want to walk in the prophets, and we want to walk in the the new covenant. It, and we want to mix all three. We want to we want to be comfortable going into any one of those three temples and worshiping. And 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 it's like it's all okay. It's it doesn't matter which one we're in. You know, if I'm you know, it my Sunday message today is is Moses. Well, I'll worship in that temple. If next week it's Jesus, well, I'll worship in that temple. And because I because I want to have three temples, uh, you know, to worship and 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 I want to blend it. I want to make it all make sense. I want to listen to all three of them. And God's very clear in in his statement. Hear him. And so I, I just, uh, once again, I find my uh, theology is being challenged and changed at the same time. Oh, yeah. I, I would find myself back in the day getting really irate about injustice. Not that it's wrong to, to see injustice, but I would get mad but take a vengeful attitude. You know, the Elijah stance, you know, uh, bring the bears out of the woods, rip them up, God, you know, <laughs> like you said, I'm going to worship at the Elijah temple for now, but now I'm going to peaceful, be peaceful and loving, and I'm going to worship at the Jesus temple for a little while. Now let's go over to the Moses temple and, and bring some law into this and the rules that people need to follow when they come into the church. If you don't follow those rules, I'm going to go back to the Elijah temple and get those bears. <laughs> Well, I, I can't figure that out because that's the right wing trying to accuse the left wing of being inclusive when they're trying to be inclusive. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> so we want, again, to, to note that Paul uh, really only contrasts Jesus and Moses one significant time in his letters. And that one time has to do with hermeneutics. And that's 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where he says, look, man, when Moses read the text, he had a veil and because the glory was fading. Well, the people that read the text with that veil on, if they, 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 they have to keep believing the glory's there, the glory's there, the glory's there, but they can't show that the glory isn't there, so they have to have that veil. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a veil over your head, particularly a darker colored one. You can sort of see through it. You can sort of get a glimpse of what might be out there, unless it's black, you know, or like a hood made of cloth, but I'm talking a veil, you know. People, if we're going to read the text, literally, that's what Paul says. He talks about the grammar of the text, the letter of the text. This is what the, this is what the Bible says. It's what God's word says. You, if you use that language, take those arguments, you are wearing a veil. And you don't even know Holy Scripture. You don't even know Jesus. And you don't know the Father. As long as you adhere to that letter of the text. And again, People that do that think the Bible was divinely dropped. They have no idea 
about the oral tradition before, how the oral tradition became textual tradition, how there were many, many textual traditions, and then things started getting translated into Aramaic and Greek, and there were many textual traditions of the Septuagint and the Targums, and the New Testament writers did not have access to a book. They had access to manuscripts or or manuscripts that they memorized because they kept hearing it in synagogue, and those are the texts they had. And they were different. You know, so this, you got to get out of your head that God wrote the Bible. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. That doesn't settle anything except that a person that believes that has got a mind of concrete all mixed up and permanently set. It's settled. <laughs> right. Interesting enough, recently, out of curiosity, I pulled up the old, the, the original Nicene Creed. And I was fascinated that there's no mention in there. Of, it mentions that Christ died and was buried according to the scriptures. But right. I didn't realize that was written before even the canon was was settled. Well, oh, that's true. So I just found that fascinating that there they were. I mean, that goes against everything that I know in modern Christianity to to actually settle on. Here's the things we're going to believe before there's even a Bible to go. This is what we're all going to base it on, you know. Well, what's, what gets established is the hermeneutic, the doctrine of the Trinity comes first. And then after that comes the texts that we are going to interpret using this doctrine of the Trinity. I, I think we're really saying something that has some depth to it, okay? it's if you will. It's meat without the bones. <laughs> and it's not necessarily easy to chew on, to admit that we've gotten it all wrong. In reality, you know, we've gotten it all wrong. And, you know, Michael, you were just talking about, you know, the veil over our face. And and is it, uh, I believe it's Paul that says, we with unveiled, unveiled faces. That's right. Behold is in a mirror, the glory. That's right. And, and it's, it's. I think that's the work of the Holy Spirit today. I was I, I was thinking about between last week and and today. I, I was thinking what made the difference coming up to the cross. And actually, let me let me rephrase that. It's actually even after the cross, uh, just before the ascension, the disciples are asking the Lord. Lord, will you at this time restore mm-hmm. the kingdom? You know, they yeah. still didn't get it. No. And I was like, okay, when did they get it? You know, when did they get it? And I, I, my theology may not be absolutely correct, but uh, I'm okay with that. But here's my here's my thinking uh, between last week and this week. Here's here's my thinking. Jesus said, tarry in Jerusalem until you be endued with power. After that, you will be a witness. A witness of what? A witness of the truth. He said, if I don't go away, it's necessary for you that I go away, because if I don't go away, the Holy Spirit cannot come. But when he comes, he will guide you into truth. All truth, he says. Uh, you know, and, and, and another place he says, he will not speak of his own, but he will take of the things that belong to me and he will give them to you. And, I, and, and it seems like, and, and I'm not pushing 
you know, I'm not pushing Pentecostalism or Charismania or whatever, but it seems like it wasn't until after this experience, and I'm not just talking about tongues, but this experience of being endued with power from on high that they begin to see and understand what Jesus had been teaching and talking about. Because uh, at least up until the resurrection, 10 days before this, they still didn't get it. Is there is there something in that, uh, Michael, that uh, uh, mer- merits exploring? Well, I, I, would, I would make the argument that the Jerusalem church... Uh, wasn't quite able to break free from that second temple Jewish eschatological hermeneutic. It wasn't quite able. And so in that sense, the human followers of Jesus uh, that we know from the Gospels as the disciples or the apostles, they never got it completely. It took an outside revelation to a non-apostle that was on a persecutory mission to kill Christians uh, and it took uh, uh, that uh, the Johannine author, who obviously was very, very intimate with Jesus during his lifetime, but not part of the apostolic group. And this would have been his f- friends down south in, were in Judea, um, which I, I think is, happens to be Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And evidently when Jesus went to their house, he did not take his disciples. That was his retreat place. That's you know? so interesting. Yeah. And so there is that revelation take. So in other words, the apostolic, the so-called 12 apostles, you know, uh, they, they never got it. They were, they were really locked into being Jewish first and then trying to fit Jesus into their Judaism. Whereas Paul realized it's, and John realized it's the other way around. We, we fit Judaism into the cross. We fit Judaism into the resurrection. We fit Judaism into Jesus, not the other way around. And this allows Jesus to both be a, a critic of his own religion, at the same time a revealer of the true God, and a critic of our religion, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. just a form of Judaism. Mm-hmm. You know, we came out of Judaism. Judaism birthed. Christianity, and I think you could make a case that the monotheistic tradition to Judaism Christianity helped birth Islam. Yeah, I could see that. I I find it so fascinating that of all the people who got it after after Jesus ascended and, and the Spirit came was was a Pharisee of Pharisees who was persecuting the church. I mean that right. that that is just mind blowing to me because that is like. To me, that's almost like who, who's going to put out the fire, the gasoline, <laughs> you know, it's right, like, it's, right, it's just, right. it, again, it's, it, to me, it's just, again, God's wisdom confounding the, the wise, you know, it's like, uh, who, who on earth would, would, would say, this is the guy who's going to, who's going to get it. Um, but then again, it always makes me wonder, you know, it's kind of like, you know, I, I always think the story of uh, how God sends quail. You know, the people uh-huh. in the wilderness were crying and crying for, you know, meat. And he goes, okay, here's meat. You're going to have it till it comes out your nostrils. Now, whether that's a story or, you know, whatever. But the point is they get so much of it, they get sick of it. And sometimes I wonder if that's where Paul was coming from, you know, in the sense that he, having been a Jew of Jews, and then he's with just Jewish sect of Christianity. 
And he's like, come on, guys. <laughs> I had this coming out my nostrils, you know? It's like, yeah, I get exactly. it. Exactly. So, yeah, I just I find that fascinating. And, and the, the guy who was the actual persecutor and, and had no problem with violence and the most zealous among them, I mean, zeal upon zeal, is the one who's turning around going, going, this is not the path. This is not the way. Um, again, it just, it's mind blowing. It's, it's kind of like, I don't know. It, 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 it's fascinating to me because it's, it's, I guess it's a little bit like that thing of being lukewarm, you know, that you see how Jesus says, I'd rather you be hot or cold. It's like, it's easier to deal with you if you're either hot or cold. And it's almost like Paul coming from a place of being completely cold or completely hot. I don't know which one's bad. <laughs> I guess it depends on the weather. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, that, that you're, that it's like, that was something God father could work with, you know, but it's like being kind of in that in between ground um, where you're kind of Jewish, Jewish law abiding, you know, kind of Christian, you know, it's, it's like, you're kind of in this place where you're not quite getting it. So, and I see that's the status of a lot of Christianity today. It's in that same place of like, well, we're going to be good, kind, loving people, but we're still going to endorse violence when it's necessary. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. we're still going to, we're going to kind of stay in this in-between ground. So, yeah, it's a, and then yet you'll hear these stories that are pretty astounding, true stories of missionaries who, you know, of, of these warlords who will turn in all their weapons when they find Jesus, you know, right, it's like right. ge- genuine repentance who've come out of that world of violence. And if now they see Jesus and they see exactly what it is, you know, for see it for what it is. You know, it's it's like Jim was talking about what last week when we talked about um, soldiers, you know, who've actually seen combat versus those who haven't. It's like those who've seen it, they know the toxin of it. Those who haven't, it's like sometimes I think they really haven't thought through what it means to kill kill somebody, to to inflict violence on another. It's it's just kind of plays in our head, you know, theories. Somebody does this, here's what I'm gonna do, and we have this whole imaginary scenario, but it's a totally different world when you've actually, which God forbid any of us actually see that, but, but it's a completely different reality when you've actually seen it, experienced and lived it, that it doesn't play out like those, you know, it's just like, I think of every, every war that came on world war one, world war two, you know, people marching off to glory, you know, and how they come back completely changed, completely different. It was nothing in all, every story you hear from a civil war, on it's like you always hear about how they thought it was going to be marching into this glorious thing fighting for the cause and oh it's going to be done and they always say it's going to be done sooner than we think you know and then they always come home if they do come home broken torn um and completely different people and uh and and so i i kind of you know that that's the thing that um i think that's why we're able to stand in that lukewarm place because if you haven't really seen what violence is, like like third world countries a lot of times that are torn by war and stuff, and they see the reality of it. See, we're so far away, you know, we're dropping bombs over in other countries or whatever. We don't see it. I think that's why it changed me when I was in Nagasaki and actually saw the the pain and the damage, I'm just going to say it, that our my home country inflicted on these weren't, these weren't soldiers. I was talking to my wife about this the other day. These weren't soldiers. These weren't these weren't the the people planning the battles. These were moms and children and grandparents. These were the innocent civilians. We don't talk about that. You know, that changed me. Yeah. What you're talking about, Lauren, is the horrors of war. 
I can't hardly imagine a person uh, that has a conscience, so whether Christian or not, uh, that is totally, totally okay with that. Right. Um, we we uh, kind of justify it in our mind with, well, yeah, that was a terrible thing, but, you know, that's just the casualty of war. I mean, what, you know, uh, I, I think you were saying earlier, I think uh, it was your grandmother, or, or I, I believe, that said, yeah, but look at how many more of our boys would have died if we hadn't have done something like that. And, and so it, somehow in our mind that kind of justifies it because we we always want to be like the the James and John who want to quote Elijah and say you know there's times when we we need to call down fire we need to call for a bear to come out of the woods and and kill that person or you know whatever and and you know we need that uh, because where would we be if we didn't have that? And 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 I, I'm just thinking, I'm thinking as I, I as I'm listening to you, Lauren, I'm, I'm projecting myself, if you will, into the mindset of uh, a person who uh, is a Christian. I'm not, I'm not saying they're not, uh, this is a hypothetical person, but a person that is a Christian, but, uh, in their mind, uh, you know, their sworn allegiances to the flag and, and, you know, and, and, and it means more than just saying, a, a, I pledge allegiance to the flag. I mean, it really, it's, it's what courses through their veins, if you will, and it's like, then you're listening to Lauren talking here, and man, what a wimp! I and mean, that guy is selling out. That guy is, uh, you know, I, I, I'm sure glad he's not in my church. It's like, you know, it's like I want patriots in my church. I want flag wavers in my church, you know. And and it's like I get that. I mean, I get that. I I am. Not too many degrees removed from thinking that way about pacifist. You know, it's like what wimps. It's like you know, it's like they've sold out. You know, and and being uh, in in many ways uh, conservative in my way of thinking. Uh, oh, that's just you know. Oh, that's one of those leftist people, you know, that that's out there and wanting to save the world, you know, save the whales. And it's like, <laughs> you know, and, and, and so we get into this mental gymnastic that goes on and this challenge because of, of strongholds of belief systems that we hold into our heart that we believe somehow is godly and then and then we start i'm going to call it spiritual warfare because it is a battle it's a it's a warfare and what michael said earlier that it was jesus that introduced you need to love the lord your god with your mind also 
You need to engage your mind into this. You need to think through these preconceived notions that you have about who God is and what God allows you to do as a, as a God follower, as someone who claims the name of Christ. And, and when we begin to put it to the test, if you will, it's very difficult to hold up nationalism against uh, the cross, against the, the message of Christ, against the one on the mountain of transfiguration that God said, listen to him, hear him. And it's very hard to, uh, you know, to... to be dualistic on that. Um, so the way, you know, they were called the pe the children of the way, people of the way. The way is, once again, we said it last week a couple of times, is a narrow way. And there are a few that find the way. You know? Right. It's like, but but I, I'm I'm coming more and more to the place where, I want to be a person of the way. I want to be a person that truly, not just my Facebook, uh, uh, you know, tag, but I truly want to be a Jesus follower. Amen. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. You know, this is so important, the road or the path. And unfortunately, the church, uh, you know, I mean, they had travelers' inns and stuff on those long roads, you know, but the church chose to, Say, well, Jesus might be the way, but we're the rest stop. <laughs> Stay here. Stay here. Stay right. here with us. Eat our fast food. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Wasn't that there's something like that? I mean, it's been so long since I've, I've, I've read it or heard the story, but wasn't that something in Pilgrim's Progress? where there was like a place to rest and they were just tempted to just stay there and not move on any further. Um, so. It just reminded yeah. me of that. Mm -hmm. it, sound, it sounds right. Like, yeah. Well, you mentioned Pilgrim's Progress, and I'm a, I'm a little kid in Sunday school with the flannel graph. <laughs> oh, wow. Exactly. Oh, yeah. We. Oh, my gosh. The thing people listening who, if they weren't young people back in, in, in our time, I mean, oh, my gosh. That, that was before you had videos to watch. So, yeah, we, we had the joy of watching uh, flannel graphs. The teacher would put the little figurines, you know, the little Jesus figure, the little, oh, you know, yeah. on the flannel graph, and he did you got to avoid that the was boredom. back in the rotor rotary dial telephone era <laughs> exactly yeah oh my gosh that's so funny you brought back major flashbacks wow <laughs> i think i'm tripping boy he's got flashbacks going man Whoa. <laughs> exactly right mine are sparked by sunday school memories <laughs> nothing tripping, really <laughs> Yeah, I, I was reminded of uh, the movie Amistad uh, that uh, Spielberg directed. And uh, there's a scene in that movie, it's based on a true story, where uh, I, I can't remember the whole premise around it um, historically. It had something to do with a, a ship that was uh, filled with uh, slaves that they were debating slave, whether, yeah. they sh whether they should go back, be able to go free or stay. And uh, in the midst of the movie, they're, they're in the uh, the uh, the the, the Africans are in the courtroom and they're looking at um, 
a Bible and they see a picture of Jesus on the cross and one turns to the other and says, says, well, no wonder the, the way they are. He goes, look, this is their God. Look what they did to their God. Um, you know, that, that they crucified, they killed their God. And, and so it was, it was really kind of like a, um, I remember even watching that, that I'd never even heard that perspective before, but to see outsiders that that's how they perceived scripture was, it was so obvious to them, you know, it wasn't like, oh, he's a divine sacrifice for, and I remember watching that. Oh, they just don't understand. It's like, no, they understood. It was point blank. They saw the picture. They killed their God, you know, that they, they, this is, our violence was on full display. So I, I just thought that was interesting that that movie actually drew that out. I'm, I'm sitting here thinking if a person is listening to this podcast in last week's in particular, and, and some that we've, we've mentioned uh, bits and pieces of this message uh, in other uh, podcasts, and they begin to make a, a, a commitment in their heart, you know, I, I think what you're saying is real, is true. I have two questions. I, number one, how would a person go about uh, looking further into this? Uh, who are some of the people that they should probably, uh, you know, pick up and read or listen to or whatever? That's one question. The second question is, maybe even more of a challenging question. Where is the body of Christ today? And how do you see the body moving towards becoming more of a representation of the, of the Jesus way? Good questions, Jim. Well, the first question in about the books, I want to hold for a second. Answer the second question first. From my perspective, um, Christianity needs to die. And that means the institutional part of it needs to go. So where is the body of Christ to be found? This is the body of Christ. We are three or more. And if a listener is listening, we're now four. And if there's two listeners listening at the same time, we are now five. We are the body of Christ because we've made a clear confession of faith. We have decided to follow Jesus and in that, all the implications that that carries with it. So we are the church right now. And um, we are the place where the Spirit is bringing revelation and challenge to people. I just re recently read a great quote, and I don't have it memorized, but it's something to the effect of people think that enlightenment is going to be joyous and happy experience. They're being enlightened to see the truth. And the author says, in reality, enlightenment is very painful because truth hurts. Mm -hmm. Wow. You know, again, again, coming back to a theology of the cross versus a theology of glory, you know. Um, the books, who are the books? Well, we both love Brad Jerzak and Brian Zahn. We all do. I mean, they're great, great guys. We love them. Um, I've had the pleasure of working with them, so it's been a lot of fun. I would include uh, Doug Campbell in this bunch. I think everybody needs to get familiar with Campbell's work. Carl Bart, for me, is still a mainstay. America is still pre-Bartian in most of its understanding of Christian thinking. Um, so I would include Carl Bart there. Um, I would include Jacques Ellul. I think Jacques Ellul deserves a new read in our day and age because he so prophetically talked about 
the problems that would face the technological society back in the late 50s and 60s. And his books are still so, so powerful. I, I think, you know, you can find uh, the, the kind of the paradigm that we've been working together on very few places, really. I mean, uh, there are authors just now coming out um, uh, that are starting to see it a little better. I know because they said, I've, I've endorsed three books so far this year and I got another manuscript to read, to, to endorse, you know, because... Um, they're, they're, they're picking it up and they're starting to move it out there a little bit, a little bit. They're not bringing anything original. None of these books does anything original, but, but at least they're getting it, sifting it through their own experiences and sharing it. Authors, other than that, for me, I, th I think everybody should have a copy of St. Francis sayings next to their bedside. I think we just... Spending time with St. Francis for me has always been, been healing. Um, I still really love uh, The Imitation of Christ uh, by the 14th century group. Um, yeah, so. Well, we're actually at time. So thanks for listening, everybody, and enlisting uh, and, and books and stuff. Uh, Jim, where could people find your book? On Facebook. You mean Amazon? <laughs> No, Facebook. <laughs> On Facebook? <laughs> you're right. You're writing your book on Facebook? <laughs> I, I thought I would throw that out there just see if I could catch you. <laughs> on Amazon.com. <laughs> Amazon.com. It's called uh, Dying of Thirst on the Bank of the River. All right. See, I'm listening. You couldn't get it by me. <laughs> what about you, Michael? Where can people find your books and your videos? Facebook, Facebook, yeah, your 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 videos are on there. Um, I've got a lot of videos have... on Facebook. I've got a lot of videos, and I have four volumes. The four volumes of what the Facebook are all the posts that I just gathered together. Yeah, because so you, you actually... often you do because you'll you'll often even repost from, in, from your memories. Mm -hmm. Like it'll show like this was right. posted in 2015, and well, yeah, I've written four books on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I, I've probably written that amount but it's not worth reading <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that wouldn't be for me to judge I, I, I'm, not, I'm not sent to judge the lost and hopeless like Lauren. exactly <laughs> <laughs> alright everybody thanks for tuning in and we'll talk to you all next week